production. Hello, A Life of Greatness listeners. I wanted to let you know about my private Facebook group called Live Your Life Greatly. It's a space for our community of like-minded people to give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. Search Live Your Life Greatly in Facebook groups. You can also join me on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg for daily inspiration, videos and behind-the-scenes footage. Search Sarah Grimberg on Instagram. Serena Dyer's father, Wayne Dyer, is one of the most prolific spiritual teachers of our time. His wisdom and many books have not only changed the lives of millions of people, but he has been one of my greatest mentors. Serena is one of the most spiritually attuned people I have ever met. In this episode, we traverse the transformative power of owning and standing in your truth, forming a sacred relationship from within, and seeing the best in others. Who we are truly is unencumbered, endless, pure love. But we forget and we disassociate and we choose to ignore. But the more we become exposed to love, the more we remember love, the more we receive love. I'm Sarah Grimberg and this is A Life of Greatness. Working as a podcast and radio producer, I have been fortunate enough to cross paths with many intriguing people who have had a profound impact on me. In this series, I share stories and experiences from the people who have brought inspiration to my life and hopefully yours too. Serena and Sage Dyer are the authors of the book The Knowing, which I can tell you is hands down one of the best books I have ever read. This episode is more than just a conversation. It's a love letter of thanks to their father, Wayne, who passed just over six years ago for all the knowledge he left in our minds and hearts. It's about grappling with inner demons and coming out the other side stronger and dealing with the grief of losing someone who you love so much. In the words of the almighty Wayne Dyer, heaven on earth is a choice you must make, not a place you must find. May this episode bring healing and love to all those who need it. Serena Dyer, you are here with me today to discuss your book, The Knowing, and so many other things. Your book is phenomenal, but I wanted to start by talking about the technological problems that we had when we got on, because this is an unbelievable story. You, we were on Zoom, you couldn't hear me. Uh, You can tell the rest of what was happening on your end, because I could hear you fine. Yeah. So I couldn't hear you. I couldn't hear anything. So then I realized, cause I could see your, I could see you. So I knew you were talking. Um, so I thought, my God, I must look or sound crazy if you could see or hear me. Cause I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, so I started chatting you. You said you could hear me, uh, through the chat app, th- through the chat feature on yes. zoom. And then, um, while I was trying to exit and then reload zoom, my my uh, mouse, my I have a Mac laptop here, and my mouse stopped working. So not only was I not able to hear you, but my mouse was not even. I was wiggling my. I was literally going like this, like pretend this is the mouse pad, and I thought she might think I'm insane. I'm just <laughs> crazy talking right now, like oh my god, please, Dad, just why are you doing this to me? I sound like a crazy person, and now my mouse my mouse isn't working, and I'm waving my hands around, and um. Finally, you had suggested in the chat that I 
turn my computer off and then back on again. And I did. But while I was waiting for the computer to reboot, I'll show you because I took a picture since we're talking about it. Just now it happened. And I took a picture because I couldn't believe that when all of this was happening, oh, there we go. If you see the time on there, it yes. was 444. Wow. So that was me taking a screenshot. You can see it's the eighth. So um, because I knew it was him. I knew without a doubt it was him. And and the most incredible bit as well is I just had said this to you before because your dad has been such a prolific part of my life and his work is so transformational as it is with millions of other people. And he's a person I often call to if I have a big talk or something, um, you know, can you talk through me? Can you be with me? All that stuff. And obviously having you here today, that was the number one person I was going to call on your dad. And you didn't know that I had called on him before you came on Zoom. So then you're telling me it must be dad playing tricks on us. And I'm like, well, I called him to come to our interview. So that wouldn't surprise me. So, And I didn't know that because, you know, I couldn't hear you. So... <laughs> It was him and he's here and he's letting us know. And, you know, he probably is like, oh, good job. Look at this beautiful woman you're talking to, you know, because he he loves beautiful women. So he's probably like, I'm definitely showing up for Sarah because she's so pretty. So <laughs> he's a he's an amazing, amazing man. And the book that you have written, and I say this with all my heart, I've told so many people this. No joke, Serena. It is one of the best books. And I have read a lot of self-improvement books because I've interviewed that many people. It is one of the best books I have ever read. So you and Sage have done the most brilliant, brilliant job. There's so many pearls of wisdom. I remember emailing you and telling you how much I had cried. Like, I don't know why (laughs) that book has made me cry so much. And I think it's the whole concept is the knowing. And I think there are so many stories in it that we'll go into that have resonated with me and it's that feeling of knowing and that's what's brought me to tears on so many occasions because you say things in a way that I know to be true and when you know it to be true is when it really hits home. So it is such a beautiful book. Well, thank you. I'm I'm really happy to hear that. Um, but I think that, that it hits home for you because the God in me recognizes the God in you and the God in you recognizes the God in me. And it's just your own recognition of, of truth. Yes. And, um, and I think that so, so often we want that, right. We want truth. We want authenticity. And I think that when we feel it, when we find it, um, it can be really gut wrenching because so often we're not, we're not actually getting that. We're not telling it. We're not living it. Um, so I think that there is something about living and, 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 and I'm guilty of it too. You know, I often don't live my talk. Mm. Um, but I think that when it, when it hits us in a way that makes us emotional, it's because we know that it's true and we need it. Yes. And I say that for myself as well, because I am a student, you know, of my, of my own words somehow. <laughs> Can you take us back to August 30th and tell us why that's such an important date in in the book? You speak about that. So that's the day that my dad died. Um, And I was actually on the phone with his assistant, Dee, who's a good friend of mine. I love her to death. um, When she found him uh, dead 
on, on or deceased, however you want to say it, it doesn't matter. He wasn't in his body. Um, and August 30th was a day that obviously changed my life because I found out live on the phone that my dad was no longer with us in a physical way. And I didn't understand um, in the beginning, even though I was on the phone with her when she found him and she was we could she couldn't get into his hotel room. So long story short, his condo on Maui, um, where we still have our condos to this day, um, the entire structure was under construction because being on the ocean, the salty air eroded the pipes. So the entire four buildings of this condo complex had to be um, replaced. And those pipes were underground. So everybody had to leave the building for months at a time. So my dad was staying next door at the Westin in a hotel. And D was authorized full access to his room. Key, you know, the whole thing. He had just gotten back from Australia two days before. And I had called him on Saturday and we talked for a long time. And um, the whole time he was in Australia and New Zealand, we FaceTimed, we talked. He was with Sage, my co-author, and my sister Sky and her husband Mo. And um Anyway, I talked to him on Saturday for a while and he was at the Westin Hotel. And then on Sunday, I was at my mom's house in Boca Raton, Florida with my siblings. And I saw that D, his assistant, had called me a bunch of times and had texted me asking when the last time I spoke to my dad was. And I knew that meant something was wrong. So I called her. I called her from a family dinner at my mom's house. And she said that she was standing outside of his hotel room at the Westin and that her key was going in and, and lighting up green, like meaning it yes. was working, but she couldn't get in. And um, she needed a family member, which I don't know why. I still don't know why, because she was fully authorized, but she needed a family member it doesn't even make sense because how would they know I was a family member? I was on the phone, <laughs> yes. you know, like, so, but they needed somebody to say that they could go through the side connecting door to get to his room or to cut the bolt and we would pay yes. for it. So obviously I said, yes, of course, whatever, whatever it is, just get in the door. And, um, and they opened the door and she started screaming, Oh my God, Wayne, no, no. Oh my God, Wayne, no. And she dropped the phone and I heard all of this. And I felt as though the closest thing I can describe it to is like an out-of-body experience where I knew what was happening was happening. I knew that he was gone, but I did not in any way understand that my feet were on the ground, that I was getting this call. Um, it just didn't make sense in my brain. Anyway, she um, she was screaming, Wayne, no, Wayne, no. And I was screaming, D, D. And she picked up the phone and said, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so sorry, Serena. And I said, uh, do CPR, do CPR. And she said, if you could see what I am seeing, you would understand. But she didn't say it like that. She said, if you could see what I'm seeing, you would understand like, like that. Yeah. And I said, I knew in that moment, I knew from the way she said it, I knew before she said it, uh, that he was gone. But the fact that she said that she would do it anyway, she said, if you could see what I could see, you would understand, but I'll do it for you. And I could cry thinking about that. And, and I said to her at that moment, I under, like, I said something like, it's okay. Or I understand. I knew she didn't say he was dead, but I knew that that meant that he was. Yes. 
And I also knew that there was so much grace, beauty, and the fact that even in that moment, she was, I mean, he had been gone for a while. We knew after the fact, rigor mortis had set in. She was willing to do CPR for me. And she didn't hesitate. And she was willing to do it. And I just think it was one of the most beautiful moments of my life. And it's crazy to say that because it was the moment I found out that he was gone. Yes. But here's the even crazier part. Um, so that was August 30th. And I kept I kept wondering, like, why was I on the phone for that? And Dee kept saying the same thing when she would go swimming and she would talk to him after he had passed in her mind. And she would say, like, Wayne, why did I have to find you? And why was Serena on the phone? And why did your daughter have to live through that? And um, this is going to sound crazy, but for people that are, you know, familiar with Wayne's, my dad's work, they know that um, it doesn't get any crazier than having him as a dad. So (laughs) I'm just going to go for it. She said that she heard him say in her head and she knew it was, was him actually talking to her. He said, um, I know this is going to sound nuts. He said, I, I dead bolted the door after I, I left my body. And the reason this is crazy is because when Sage, my sister was in Australia with my dad, two days, three days before he died, she had a conjoining room to his and um, my sister Sky and her husband were across the hall and because they had joining rooms, there was like a deadbolt that separated them. Yeah. And one morning, Sage had deadbolted the doors to separate her from my dad. And my dad was knocking on the door and Sage opened it. And he said, don't ever deadbolt the door. And Sky and Mo were in the room. And he said, Sage, don't ever use a deadbolt. And she said, well, I don't want you coming in the room. Like I'm, I'm going, you know, to the bathroom or take a shower, like, you know, whatever. And he said, If something happens to you or if something ever happened to me, I never use a deadbolt because it only delays the help getting to me. So the reason it was shocking that his deadbolt was on was because A, he had never used a deadbolt in my entire life that I could remember. But B, three days before he had talked about how he would never use one. And D knew that. D knew that not from us. She knew that from my dad talking to her about it. Like, don't ever use a deadbolt. You never want to use that in a fire. You can't get out Mm. on and on. So when she said to him, why was the deadbolt on? That was why she couldn't get in the door. Why was the deadbolt on? Why would you have the deadbolt on when you were so anti it? And he said to her, because I didn't want you to find me alone. I wanted you to be on the phone with Serena. Because I knew that she could handle it. And he said, according to B, that after he died, he and his loved ones, they came to get his soul to bring him, you know, to the other realm. They locked it. They actually locked it. They locked it after he died. And I have no idea if that's true. And I know that sounds crazy, but I, I would say that knowing him, it's even crazier that the night he died, the deadbolt was up. That's an incredible story. And I think that's what your whole book is about. You know that to be true. And if you know that to be true, then it's true. But August 30th, um, we uncovered, Sage uncovered in the process of um, of going through the grief process that our dad had written about in his 
kind of memoir, I can see clearly now that August 30th, I think it was 1974, was the day that his life changed forever. And that was the day that he um, found his father's grave, his father that he had never known, his father that he hated, his father that he spent the first 34 years of his life angry toward. Um, he had found his grave and he went there to, to piss on it. And, um, and he did on August 30th, I think it was 1974. And he pissed on his father's grave. Um, and as he was walking away from the grave, he felt something, he heard something, he had a knowing to go back and he did. And he listened and he said from this moment on to his father at his father's grave, I send you love mm -hmm. and I forgive you. And he did that after an entire lifetime of rage and anger toward a father that abandoned his mother and him and his brothers, which resulted in him being in foster care and um, on and on. And the moment he forgave his father, he, uh, he then left the grave and he rented a motel room in Fort Lauderdale, which is where I happen to live now. And he wrote your erroneous zones in two weeks at the Spendthrift Motel in Fort Lauderdale Beach. And that book went on to become the number one best-selling book of the 70s. And he um, left his tenured position as a professor. He lost like 50 pounds. He left an unhappy relationship. He met my mother and I am here and my children are here and my sister Sage, my co-author and all of us are here because of that single moment of forgiveness. And in his book, I can see clearly now, he said, if I had to say what was the single most defining day of my life, it would be August 30th, the day my relationship with my father forever changed. Wow. And the fact that Sage discovered that after our dad died and our dad also died August 30th, um, we wrote about it, but we both took it to mean that it wasn't an ending. Mm -hmm. It was a day that established a new beginning or a new experience, but there was no end about it. It was just different now. And, um, and I know 100% that, that him going on August 30th was meant to convey that message. Yes. He knew that it seemed through signs, Serena, that he knew that he was going to pass, even though he was well. Yes. Because he had had, we can speak about this just before we talk about the signs, but he had had leukemia. And mm -hmm. something that I followed quite a lot was his story that he had with John of God, which was incredible. And, you know, regardless. Yes, I was there. Were you? I was there for that. Wow. I, well, I was, he didn't go to Brazil. No, it his was the God. remote healing. Yeah, that's Right. And I was there for the beginning and the end. I was the one that was there, actually. Um, I was there with him. I don't know if you read the part about the Panerai watch that I, he bought. I, I heard an interview that he did when he was talking about it, but I'd love you to tell us a bit about it. And just for people that don't know, John of God is obviously a healer in Brazil. And there were, I don't know, there was claims of sexual misconduct or allegations. I'm not sure if he's been charged or what happened there, but... I think a lot of people do say, regardless of that, that he's supposed to be. And from if we're going on what happened with your father, there is some 
quite incredible stuff that happens through his remote healings and healings if people go to Brazil. What I have to say about John of God is that people have a tendency to guru-fy somebody that is still a human being. And I'm not excusing John of God. Um, I, I am a survivor of rape. So I do not in any way condone what he did or may have done, allegedly or not allegedly. I don't condone it. But I also don't make him out to be um, beyond reproach. I don't make him out to be without human fault. So him being a sexual predator exists. That's a real possibility. But him having a gift also exists and they're not exclusive of each other. He could be a really um, gifted healer and also a horrible predator. Yes. I'm not creating him to be God in my mind, Yeah, but I do know that he was able to, um, to channel, if you will, to channel, to um, bring in healing entities. And that has nothing to do with his sexual misconduct allegations. It doesn't excuse them. It doesn't condone them. But it is separate and it's separate because people's lives have been saved. And I'm not saying it's because of him as the man, because it's not. It's because of his ability as the channel. And I believe, in fact, I know I was there that um, my dad had uh, been diagnosed with CLL, which is chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And it's a type of leukemia when it's chronic. It means it's ongoing. You don't treat it. There's no uh, radiation or um, chemotherapy. You don't do anything for it. It's just chronic. It exists. If it turns to acute, it becomes deadly and then you treat it. So my dad had chronic. Um, when he died, the autopsy doctor, uh, said that he had zero traces of any form of leukemia in his body. So I know that it worked because chronic is incurable. It does not go away. And his did according to his autopsy. (laughs) So he had a friend, uh, an, eye, an eye doctor from LA, from California, go to Abadania, that was where it was in Brazil, Brazil, and bring his photos that I took. Um, and at the beginning of the treatment, and the reason I say I took is because I was like, what in, the, what in the F is this? Like, what are you doing? Like, why are we taking pictures of you all in white from the right, from the left, from the front to the back? Like, it was just you know, to me, it was like, this is another one of my dad's crazy things. Um, but I sent them to his friend in, uh, in LA who was going there. She printed them out. She brought them. And like two days later, and at the time he had an iPad, but he did not use email. He didn't understand it. Um, so I had to email for him. So at the time she emailed me back and said, um, that the, the, the entities recommended a certain number of surgeries for him. And all these different things, like no pork products, no pepper, um, no alcohol, like just things that I remember just reading off to him and him saying like, fine, I'm ready to do my surgery, my psychic surgery. So um, the date is set for him to do his psychic surgery. And it was set for like midnight Hawaii time of whatever day it was. Let's just say it was a Sunday midnight. We went to a shopping area near us in Maui, he and I, at like 6 p.m., like six hours before his surgery. Right. Um, and there was a jewelry store there and my boyfriend at the time, who's now my husband, liked these watches called Panerai's and they were selling these Panerai's. And 
we went in there to look at them and the um the salesperson explained how Panerai's are like pilot watches or I don't know. They're really, really specific. They're like guaranteed time forever. Even in the event of like a nuclear <laughs> catastrophe, this Panerai is like magnetically pulled. It will never lose time. You don't have to wind it. Yes. Like it doesn't need a battery. It's just this whole thing. So he bought one. It was very expensive, like over $20,000. And he bought one and he wore it home that day. And six hours later, he had his psychic surgery with his, <laughs> indisputable watch on and the next morning he uh woke up um and said like let's go for a walk which we went to do and he realized during our walk that his watch had stopped working and this watch was not supposed to ever stop working also in the first five minutes of that walk he started to like collapse and say that he couldn't go any further that he felt like he was gonna faint or die so we went back to the condo and um, I called his friend who was down there and she said, my God, I told him this is a real surgery. This is not a pretend surgery. He had real surgery. He has to lay in bed. So he gets in bed. He stayed in bed the entire week. I was bringing him like food. I mean, he went to the bathroom and stuff, but like he barely came out. We took at the end of the week, we took his watch back and, um, we got another one. They like, they could not have apologized more. They were like, this has never happened in the history of Panerai. They gave us a replacement brand new. That was the evening of the suture removal, which is when they take the psychic yes. things out that night, suture removal watch stops again. Never has happened in the history of Panerai. And it happened for the second time. And when that happened, um, he woke up from his week of, I don't know, being just influenced. And he just was so different and he was so full of love and he yeah. was so um, incredibly love filled in a way that he had always been, but beyond that, mm -hmm. he had always been like a loving dad, but this was different. This was loving everybody, everything. It was just so different. And, um, and he woke up like that from his suture removal and his watch was again broken. So I don't have an explanation for that, but it was real. And didn't he, I remember him saying that he went down the street and was giving maybe like $50 bills to homeless people. And he said that, as you mentioned, he'd never, that feeling of love, he had never felt it, I think, that intensely before in his life. I mean, that is an yes. incredible story. He did the the homeless dollar bill thing um, yeah. at, on his birthday. So when the whole psychic surgery and all that took place, I'm pretty sure that took place in January or February and his birthday was May. Yeah. But it was, you know, it, yes, it was like after that experience, something changed and he was... So, I don't know, just um, wanting to show love to everyone and everything in every moment. And he started studying this thing called the I Am Discourses. Um, and funny enough, he gave me one of those books and it actually, I found it the other day. And anyway, the whole I Am Discourses is about this idea that who we are truly is unencumbered, um, endless, pure love. But we forget and we disassociate and we, um, we choose to ignore. But that the more 
we become exposed to love, the more we remember love. Mm. And when we come from that place, the more we receive love. And he was at a point in his life where he was just living and giving that. And I know that he still is now. And I, and I wholeheartedly believe, I know that, um, that he's doing it in a bigger and better way than he could have while he was restricted in his body. And there's nothing that he would have loved more than to touch more people's lives than he did while he was here in the physical. And as we touched on earlier, it seemed like he knew that he was going to pass even though he was well. He did. In some way, in hindsight, we realized that. We didn't realize that, you know, obviously at the time, but um, as, you know, as we wrote about in the book, like he had these plants that he loved that he was just obsessed with and he was always talking about his plants and how special they were. And um, the day he had to leave his condo for the construction, um, he said to his assistant D, she came up with the bell cart, you know, the bellman's cart yes. to take all the plants to her condo. And uh, he said, you know what, D, where I'm going, I'm not going to need these plants. So you can give them away or get rid of them or whatever. And um, it was only in hindsight that she realized that that was incredibly bizarre. Um or maybe insightful. And it was the same thing with, um, with Sage. He paid her entire tuition mm. up front, even though he had never done that before and always talked about how he would never do that. Um, but he did that. And if he hadn't, she would not have had access to all of that money. Oh, not because my mom, my mom absolutely would have given it to her, but we were in litigation with a, an attorney for a while after he passed. So it would have delayed things. And, um, the day he, the day before he passed away, he said to me, um, he said, I love you, Serena. I've always loved you. And I said, I love you too, dad. And he said, but I want you to always look after your sister. And one of my sisters that's uh, struggled with addictions. And he said, but I want you to really look after her. And I said, yeah, I will. Like, uh, like I, you know, I'm nice to her. Like, what do you mean look after her? Like you look after her. It's not my daughter. Like, a friend, but, like, what do you mean look after her? And anyway, at the end of the call, he said, um, I love you. I really, 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 really love you. And he said it four times. And I remember thinking like he was jet lagged from Australia. Um, but in hindsight, again, I think he knew that that was the last time that he was going to be able to makes me cry. It was the last time he would be able to say it to me. Um, like not in person, but you know, over the phone, yes. if physically <laughs> in his voice. And, um, and I don't actually miss him here as the physical person. I do in some ways, selfishly, I do in like small ways, like I loved how much he loved me and I loved how much he loved my siblings and I loved how much he loved my mom. And I loved that feeling of being loved. Um, And I miss like the jokes and the silliness, but his presence, his gift has become so present for me. And I'm so aware of it now. And I was not while he was alive. And I didn't, I didn't pay attention to it. And I didn't know how valuable it was. And if he didn't die, if he hadn't have gone, 
Maybe I never would have. And I, um, I'm, I'm grateful that he did. I'm grateful that he went. Not because I don't miss him, because I do, but because it's just the next part of it, you know? Like, yes. it's just the next part of the process, the next part of the journey. One day I'm not going to be here for my kids. If anything, I can hope that when I go, they can say, that they're grateful that I was here and now I'm on the other side waiting for them too. Not that I think he's waiting for me. He's definitely not waiting for me. If anything, he's waiting for you. No. He's definitely not waiting for me. I promise you. He's too busy here trying to muck things up for the two of us. Yes. He's still he's still making gags. Yeah, for sure he is. As you know, Wayne is so loved by so many people. So many people. Oh, it's just stopped. Jimmy Barnes? I know Jimmy Barnes. I've been to his house. <laughs> oh, my God. No, you know how I know Jimmy Barnes? How? When I was um, 13 or 11 or 13, no, I was 13. I went to Australia with my dad. Yeah. I went to Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane. And in Sydney, Olivia Newton-John and yes. her daughter came and Jimmy Barnes and him and his wife and but he has like five kids they came yes I never heard of him because I, you know in America he's not as well known they came backstage he had a daughter my same age and she asked me if I wanted to go to a party with her <laughs> and I said yes and his wife picked me up from the hotel and I went with Jimmy Barnes daughter to their house where they were having a party and like I was like 13 I hung out the whole time and then the wife drove me back. I don't remember her name which is I'm anti-feminism I apologize but that is so weird I mean I just have so many connections to Australia and um before we started this I was thinking about how okay dad if there's something I want you to say I want you to say something about Jimmy Barnes I was thinking about that before I came on like dad if if there's anything I want to know that you're here I want you to say something about like Jimmy Barnes you're joking I swear to God on his life that I was thinking that in the bathroom before he came on. But then I was thinking, you know what? I shouldn't put in like an attachment or like an expectation. That is crazy. I mean, I know in Australia, Jimmy Barnes is very famous, but. Anyway, yes, out of any out of any song to come on. I mean, you know, for it to be his is bizarre. Yeah. What I want to know is how was it growing up in a family where your mom and your dad gave you so much love? Because as you spoke about in the book, there were your mum's love to you was so unconditional. It, it seemed she oh. was a wonderful woman and uh, it reminded me a lot of my mum and how she would do anything for my brother and I and my kids. And, yeah, she seems also incredible. Yeah, that's that's what we were talking about before Jimmy yes. Barnes came on through my dad, <laughs> letting us know once again that he's here. Yes. Um, we were talking about how I wrote in the book about um, the concept of Shibumi, which is uh, the name of my favorite book. And it was my dad's favorite book. And he told me to read it. It was his favorite book when he was like a younger person. But um, anyway, it's a, it's a Japanese word for a concept that is indescribable. It's like a silent beauty without effort. It's when somebody does something that's so perfect and they don't, they don't ask for or look for any rationale. It's just, there are those moments in your life where you see something, you see somebody, for example, if somebody um, doesn't have enough money to pay the check, 
and let's say they're short a little bit and the person behind them covers it without saying a single word or the, the cashier covers it. And it's not that they do it out of pity, out of sympathy, out of getting uh, recognition. They just do it because generosity, love is who they are and they want nothing in return. There's a perfection that you feel. Mm. It's indescribable. And my mom did that for me um, when my husband was uh, indicted yes. and arrested. And she put her entire house on the line for his release. Um, and while doing so, she tried to make silly jokes. And I knew in that moment that um, as a mother, her, her only desire was to protect me. Even if it meant protecting me from the awareness of the totality, the severity, the risk that she was taking on my behalf. She would have rather made a joke than let me know how serious it was, what she was doing for me. And that was so perfectly beautiful, divine, inspired, um, something that I think really, you know, only mothers can do. Mm. But um, it was nothing about her. It was everything for me. And it was silent and it was not asking a single ounce of recognition. And that to me is what Shibumi or um, effortless perfection, effortless beauty represents. And my mom is that. And she has always been that. And even though her and my dad, you know, they, they actually did stay married, even though they, they yes. ended up separating, like kind of relationship wise, they stayed married. They became better friends, best of friends. And as my dad would say, and I'm here to confirm, she was the teacher and he was the student. Yeah. But he was a really good talking student and a good performer and a good storyteller. Um, but she was always the one that had the innate wisdom and still does. And she absolutely still does. What I think is really interesting in the book that I wanted to touch on is people have this assumption that, you know, oh, I'm sure that your dad's Wayne Dyer and you would have had the best life and your parents, they're so spiritual and you, there's eight kids and you all grew up with no problems. I mean, your life has been riddled with a lot of huge events and you sound like the most resilient, unbelievable woman and no. I, I wanted to touch on that because <laughs> because you have you have gone through a lot of dark nights yourself and and I'm still going through them yeah and coming through the end and 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 learning so much from them you talk about a lot of them in the book but one in particular is with your stepson Mason who sounds also like an incredible human and you very honestly tell the story of your relationship between the two of you and him eventually uh, passing away when he was young. Who your parents are or are not, it doesn't, it doesn't determine anything about your life unless you allow it to, unless you choose for it to. So for example, I have a father who had um, a, an absent father. Uh, he grew up in foster home. So like, you know, pretty much no loving parental 
role for the longest part of, for the beginning part of his childhood. Um, that was my dad. And he grew up to be an incredible teacher of love, um, self-love, forgiveness. He didn't have it modeled for him in the beginning, but he learned it. And I, on the other hand, had incredible parents and still do, even though one is in the spiritual and one is still here. Um, and I, I fought myself every step of the way. So I guess in other words, it's not your parents doing and it's not your parents undoing. It's up to you. Yes. And I think that's the biggest freedom that comes from growing up in a spiritual household. Everything is up to you. That's also the biggest downfall of growing up in a spiritual household, because there's nothing that sucks more than knowing that all this shit is your doing. (laughs) And there's nothing that's better than knowing that all this shit can be undone by you. Sometimes I think it's nice to know that um, it's somebody else's fault. It's not your fault. It's somebody else's fault. But there's no freedom in that. There's no power. And ultimately, even though it's annoying to have to take responsibility for everything that shows up in your life, it doesn't mean you're at fault. It doesn't mean you're to blame. It means you take responsibility to release yourself from the ties that connect you to it, right? So if something happened to you and you take responsibility, you let it go. You're no longer connected to the thing that you despise in the first place. You're free. And you're empowered. So that's the beauty of growing up in a spiritual household. So having parents like I did and I, and I do doesn't mean I'm free from wanting to just not take responsibility to, um, to not be good. I, I've had many experiences in my life when I'm, when I say be good, what I mean is that I've had many experiences in my life where I've wanted to be not, not responsible, not attached just to be doing something bad, just because who cares? Yeah. Um, Ultimately, I think that we all are faced with this decision and the decision is whether or not we become closer to God or further away. And we all know all of us, We all know whether we're doing something that brings us closer or further away. It doesn't matter how it's defined by society or not. I know I've had really difficult times in my life, um, all in a really short period of time. My husband was indicted. Um, I gave birth. I had 30 pounds to lose superficially. I know that doesn't seem like a big deal, but it was to me. Um, My dad died. My stepson passed away from an unexpected accidental overdose. My husband was sentenced to seven years in prison. I had another baby in that time frame. My husband's conviction was overturned. Um, I found out I was pregnant for a third time, really complicated pregnancy, all these different things, really intense. Oh, I had no finances. Um, All of our assets were frozen because of my husband's stuff. Every single aspect of my life that I liked before, I thought I was skinny pretty, young, wealthy, smart. I thought I was all of these great things, right? And, and, and I probably was. All of a sudden, I was chubby, no money, no um, confidence. I felt uh, abandoned. My husband was going to prison. I mean, everything reversed itself. Yeah. Everything that I identified as being of value to myself was gone. And I had to face the decision of whether or not I could take responsibility for that or not. And I felt so much shame 
that you can't even imagine because I felt as though if we get in life what we what we are, not what we want, then I must be bad because all this bad was happening. And therefore I felt shame, enormous shame. I'm not like the strongest or most resilient person, but I am intelligent. And I was able to understand that maybe, maybe all these things that I thought were bad were just labeled bad or viewed as bad because they were not the outcome or the result or what I thought should have happened or ought to have happened. But maybe they were still good and maybe there was still beauty to them and love to them and, and incredible healing and teaching to them. And maybe if I let go of the way that I was attached to viewing them like bad, maybe I could see the beauty. Maybe I could get the meaning and maybe I wouldn't have to be so responsible for them. And um, it was in the process of writing our book that I discovered that, that, email that my dad sent to his friend in Australia, Dr. Maithri Guntalek, um, about the poem from Huffies in a Treehouse. And it was about how um, Rumi wrote, Hafiz was writing about Rumi's poem and how Rumi wrote how before each of us at our birth is a ladder that is placed and we climb the rungs of the ladder and we climb them. Nobody climbs them for us and God doesn't climb them for us, doesn't make us climb them, doesn't take away the rungs. It's just there. And maybe all of the things that I thought were happening to me because I was bad were actually rungs on the ladder that I chose before I even incarnated so that I could climb my way toward God, toward enlightenment, toward love, that my dad dying, that Mason dying, that financial stress, that body image issues, that all of those things were not bad. They were just rungs, rungs toward love, rungs that I could choose to climb or I could choose not to. And no matter what I chose, it would be okay. But if I chose the rungs of love, if I chose forgiveness, acceptance, beauty, if I chose to see the unfolding of God in each of those rungs, in each of those difficulties, if I chose that, I could become closer to everything I was seeking, everything. And um, you don't get in life what you are because you're bad. You get in life what you are because you are challenged to become more like what you are, which is good, mm. which is God. But it's okay if you don't choose it. It's okay. You'll choose it the next time around or you won't. And you'll keep trying until you do. And um, I'm not the strongest person in the world. I'm not the most resilient. I've fallen and failed so many times, more times than I can count. And I still fall and I still fail. But I know I know that I no longer view life as happening to me because I'm sentenced to some bad outcome or punishment. I'm just 
as good as God. And therefore I can show up in that way and it will, it's all good and it's all God. That is unbelievable. How has your life changed since you've really known that? Wow, I don't know if I've even thought about that. Um, it's still it's still changing. So my dad used to say when we were kids, um, we had a prayer of St. Francis yeah. that was framed in, in our hallway in our bedroom. I just want to say I read that in one of his books and I am Jewish and it's a Christian <laughs> or Catholic prayer, I think. And I thought, my God, that is the most beautiful prayer. So I printed it out. And I memorized it. And for the last two and a half years, I have said that prayer every single morning before I go into meditation. Because you, see, that's why my dad showed up on this, on this podcast, because you, because you're doing that, because it's not a prayer, it's a technology. And that's what he said to me. It's a technology that it is the definition for how to live your life according to God. The, the God realized individual does not say First of all, it has nothing to do with religion, because if you don't find a temple in your heart, you will never find your heart in a temple. And it goes both ways for Christianity, Buddhism, Islam, uh, every religion. You have to have it in your heart. That's first and foremost. And you have it. And that's why it doesn't matter what what religion you are. Second of all, um, the prayer of St. Francis is a technology. It is not somebody saying, dear God, I, I need love. I need peace. Please give me this. Please give me that. I don't have it. My mother-in-law does this to me. My neighbors do that. Um, my ex-husband is such an asshole. I can't get this from him. It is nothing about anybody else except for dear God, how may I serve? How may I become like what it is I am seeking? So it's not dear God, please give me peace. My life sucks. It's, dear God, please let me be an instrument. Let me become thy peace. Let me be an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me bring love. Not, give me some love. Give me some peace. I need some. It is, let me become what it is I am seeking. If We already know it's proven it's a universe based on laws of attraction and people get this so wrong, just like I did. You think that you get what you want because you attract it. You get what you are. But if something bad happens, it's not because you are bad. It's not even bad that happened. It's that you are viewing it in a certain way that's putting a label on it that's designed to keep it limiting. So in other words, if... If the universe is based on attraction and we say, dear God, let me be love. And God gives us more ways and more reasons to love. We don't question it. We show up for it. We do it. Um, The prayer of St. Francis is like a way of becoming what we seek, not just because we're asking for it, but because we first want to offer it to others. We first want to provide it. And that is how the universe works. And um, I think, I I guess what I'm trying to say is that I think it's really easy to believe that like karma, I I see this all the time here in Florida. Karma is this thing that's like karma's a bitch. It's like a bumper sticker. It's like somebody crossed you. So they're going to get crossed. It's nothing like that. 
at least that I know, karma is you as a soul coming here to the lifetime that you're having, which is the classroom saying, I want to learn this. I want to experience this because I want to grow. My soul wants to grow. So let me experience what I need to grow. But somebody cutting me off and me cutting them off back is not growing. Growing is let them be, let them pass, let them go in front of me. I think people think that like if somebody gets something bad in their life, it's like that's their karma. Sometimes that's the rung they signed up for. Sometimes that's because their soul only wants to grow and that's how great they are. So don't judge them. Yes. That's what I always want to say when I see this like karma's like a bitch thing. Tell me, there's been so much that we said happened in your life. And as we mentioned briefly, you spoke about how your stepson Mason died, but you do have an amazing story about how he did come to you in a dream. Yeah, so I had a, I, I mean, eventually I had a really good relationship with Mason, but at the beginning, actually for a lot of years, majority of the years, I was really threatened by him. Um, he was 13 years younger than me and I'm 13 years younger than his dad. So um, I think I felt like jealous, threatened. I wasn't the best stepmom, in other words, um, in a lot of ways, I wasn't the best stepmom. I was a really good stepmom once Matt and I got engaged and I was no longer threatened by him having a son. Um, my husband raised Mason on his own as a single parent, his entire Mason's entire life. Um, but I was just threatened by their relationship. I, I can't explain it in any way other than that. But um, once Matt and I got engaged and then we got married, I think Mason and I had grown to really love each other and actually have a lot of fun with each other. And um, we started to have a really, really good relationship, like a really fun relationship where he and I would like gang up against his dad and um, et cetera. But um, when Mason passed away, um, I, I couldn't remember a single good thing or nice thing that I had done for him. I could only think of all of the times I had been mean all the times I had hoped that he got in trouble or wished that he got in trouble um, because that meant that he wouldn't come with us to dinner or that um, I wouldn't have to share his dad with him. And, um, and I had done that for a long time. I had done that for years, even though I had not done that for years, I had done that for a long time. And um, Mason. Um, the, uh, so before he passed away, you know, it wasn't that way between us. It was actually really great between us. And um, we had only love for each other. And I didn't have any of those feelings toward him. I had actually had his second sister by the time that he passed away. So um, we had a really good relationship. But after he passed, all I could think about was every single main thing I had ever done. And I couldn't get past them. And I couldn't think of him in any way other than um, how horrible I was. And I didn't even feel like I was worthy of grieving for him. I didn't feel like I was worthy of even being at his funeral. I felt like I had just been awful and I didn't deserve a moment of him. And, um, and I was hell bent on punishing myself in that way for as long as I was alive. And, um, my husband, Mason's father, Matt, um, said to me at the time that if I, if I could remember what I said after my dad died, 
which was that if I wanted to experience him, I had to become like where he was, um, which was, which was joy, which was love, which was heaven. Um, then I could only think of him in that place. If I wanted to feel him, if not, then I could just stay stuck. But I didn't feel worthy of feeling him in that place. I felt worthy of being stuck only. Um, but my husband was asking me, begging me to not go down that road of feeling like full of blame, even though I, I mean, I wasn't to blame for his death, but I felt like I was to blame for his distance. And anyway, um, so I, I started to fall asleep one night when my husband had asked me to like think about Mason in a different way. And um, as I was falling asleep, I remembered this time when Mason and I were obsessed with scary movies and we watched like 10 in one week. And I started laughing, thinking about how one night he got so scared that he called 911 because he thought he heard something in the attic and it wasn't anything there. But I started laughing and smiling in my like falling asleep state. And um, that night he came to me in a dream and he said, um, well, I said to him, can I touch you? And I knew that that meant it was a real visitation because my dad had already passed away and all these mediums and psychics had told me that that meant it was real. So he put his hands out and I held them. And I said to him, um, but, but I didn't know just because of that. I knew it was real because it was real. I felt him. I could see him. He was glowing. And I said to him, um, did you see all of the mean things that I did to you? And what I meant by that, I said it was when you died, did you like get to review your life and see how I had done mean things? And he said, yes. And I said, do you forgive me? And he said, yes. And he kind of laughed like as if that was like ridiculous. And I said, um, do you love me? And he went like, yeah, just like that. Like, yeah. And I said, do you know that I love you? And he said, yeah. And, um, I said, have you seen my dad? <laughs> and he said, he joked and smirked. And it was almost like, it was like an inside joke. And he was like, yeah, like, like that. And then he said, before I go, I have to tell you one thing. New teachers are emerging. You have to remember that. And then it was like, he was gone. And I woke up like laughing and crying and so happy. And um, I thought at the time I wrote it all, I typed it in my phone and my notes, I woke my husband up. I thought at the time that new teachers meant like I was going to be this like cool, great teacher on this like big world <laughs> stage. That's what I thought. Honestly, um, I did not think it meant that I was going to face so many rungs on the ladder, so many teachers, but now I know that's exactly what it meant that I had new teachers, new things, new people, new experiences, new difficulties showing up, but they were all teachers. Mm. They were all teachers. And I signed up for those classes. And if I could just get the message, if I could just get the love in the experience, I could go from first grade to second grade to yes. third grade but it was only my doing that could get me there. And, um, and I know that's exactly what he meant. And I, I might still be in first grade, but you know, I'm like a first grade, a, a student, I'm getting it. I'm just slowly getting it. I'm on my way to second grade. One of your favorite lines that your dad says is when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. And whenever I'm stuck, 
I just think about that because I just believe it to be true for almost everything that occurs in life. Well, yeah, so there's two things about that that I think that he didn't do. Sorry, Dad. I don't think my dad did a good enough job explaining why there's a twofold meaning to that phrase. Like he explained, you know, to us at home. First is that A Course in Miracles describes a miracle as a change in your perspective or perception. So when you change the way you look at things, when you change how you're looking at it, when you shift your perception, your perspective, that is a miracle that changes. So there's that aspect. But the second is that in quantum physics, when they viewed particles, like everything is energy, right? We know that to be true. It's a fact. There's these like sub subatomic particles called quarks. And when they were viewed under a microscope, whoever was looking at them um, determined the way they behaved. So if you were an angry person and you came to that microscope, those particles behave differently than if you were like a loving person and they did experiments with those. So anyway, it literally is a scientific definition that says when you change the way you're looking at things, when your mind, when your energy, when your viewpoint, like when you view quarks, when your energy is changed, what you are looking at on a subatomic particle level, it changes. So if you're coming at something from love, the energy shifts. Mm. But also, when you change the way you're looking at things, you're experiencing, like A Course in Miracles says, the, the shift in your perspective and your perception. When you see things differently, when you see something that's happening to you or happening for you, when you see something that's happening because you're bad versus because you're challenged to grow, everything changes. And that's really what he meant by when you, I mean, I'm taking creative liberties here because he didn't say it exactly like that, but I know what he meant. Yes. And um, that is really what he meant by when you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. It's not just that you bring a different energy or your perspective changes, which, which is a miracle, but it's that you stop seeing life as happening to you. Yeah. And you start seeing life as happening for you, no matter what bad, bad in quotes, no matter what bad thing happened, no matter what difficulty, no matter what relationship ended, no matter what job was lost, when you start to see it as happening for you, you start to experience it as happening for you. And um, and that makes all the difference in the world. What teaching of your father's has been the most transformational in your life? Oh, wow. Well, um, it's not something that he ever said. It's something that he did. My dad never said, um, honey, go follow your dreams while I sit at home and sacrifice my own, he followed his dharma, even if it meant missing a basketball game, a play, uh, a weekend event. He, he followed his dharma without any apology or excuse or um, sacrifice. And he did it because who he is, who he was, what he came here to do was so big that he didn't let anything get in the way of that. 
And I think that the greatest thing he ever gave me was showing me that. Mm. He didn't say, go follow your dreams. Well, he gave up his own. He followed his every single day. That's beautiful. Even if it meant missing things. And yeah. if I could do anything for my kids, it would be to follow my own and hope that on some subconscious level, it gives them permission to do the same. Yes. Because children, what we are doing is so loud, they cannot hear what we're saying. What we are doing, what we are living, what we are demonstrating is so loud. And if my kids can see that I'm also worthy of following my own, even if it means missing their basketball game or play, I hope that somehow they understand that they too are worthy of the same. Yeah. So that would be the best gift he gave me. What's the best advice that you've ever been given? So the best advice, um, okay, so here's a little a little funny fact. You probably don't know this, but once upon a time, a young writer wrote to my dad and asked him for the title of a book. He said, here's what my book is about. And I'm asking you if you could help me find the title for it. And um, my dad wrote back to him and said, here's your title. Don't sweat the small stuff. It's all small stuff. And so my dad wrote the author of that book, the title, and he get, the author gives my dad credit for that. So the best advice I think I've ever heard, I don't know if I've been given it, but I've heard it, is that it's just not worth stress. It's not worth sweating. It's not worth, um, I've gone through so many times where I've been so worried and stressed and afraid, and it's just not worth it at the end yeah. of the day because our lifetime is, um, our, our, our time, our lifetime, our time here, that's our currency. We think that like, the money we make and the money we spend and what we have is our currency, but no, it's our time and how we spend our time is what we end up with. And if we spend our time, our currency worried about everything that we don't want to have happen, and it doesn't do anything to prevent it from happening or change the outcome, then my God, it's like filling your house with everything you hate. Yes. You would never do that to yourself. You would never fill your, you would never furnish your dream home with your hateful furniture. You know, like you would fill your dream home with everything you love. And we so often fill our home, our, our life, our mind, our experience with what we don't want, with what we don't like. We sweat the small stuff. We worry, we stress. And, um, and my friend, uh, my dad's friend and who now is my friend, Scarlett Lewis, who lost her son in the Sandy Hook. Shooting. Yes. Yes. Um, I remember that. Story. Yeah. So she's, yeah she's, so she's a friend of mine and um, she and I were talking the other day and I was saying to her that so often I say that the best advice I've ever been given was not, I didn't know her before her son passed away. So I didn't know her son, but I know him now. And his advice was have a lot of fun. And he wrote that on a note to his mom and his brother before he passed away. And he left it for them to find after he was gone. And his note said, have a lot of fun. And I think don't sweat the small stuff and have a lot of fun is the same thing. We're here in this classroom to grow. Have fun. Fill your home, your life with what you love, with what you want and you'll get more of it. Mm. Um, stress and worry and fear and hate, 
And you'll get more of that, not because you deserve it, but because that's where you are. But take where you are and allow love to transform it. And you'll find yourself from here to here. Like my dad did at his father's grave. Yes. He went from angry and stuck here to just loving and forgiving. And he went to here. And it wasn't because he hated his father to the top. It was because he transformed that to love. And he loved him. And God returned it. Because, you know, God doesn't know how to do anything but. What's been the most mystical experience that you have ever had? Um, the day that I went to, with my husband, to surrender him to prison. And uh, so for people that read the book, you know the story, but yes. long story short, my husband went to trial and white collar crime was sentenced to seven years. And um, he had to turn himself in on January 12th of 2000. Uh, Seven, no, 2018. Yeah. January 12th, 2018. He had to surrender to Pensacola, Florida for a seven year prison sentence. And the closest airport to Pensacola, Florida was New Orleans. Um, so he and I said goodbye to our two girls. Um, I was coming back home. I had a return ticket. He did not. And he said bye to the girls. They were, um, Windsor and Sailor were born in 2015 and 2016. So they were like two and two and a half and one and a half. I think, um, they wouldn't remember him basically, once he was gone, because they were that young that they wouldn't remember him. And Mason had just passed away. And um, he and I flew to New Orleans and we rented a car and we were going to drive from the biggest airport to this little prison town on on January 11th. Um, We flew in the day before, just in case there was any complication. And on January 11th, we were in New Orleans trying to leave the airport to head to Pensacola. And, um, we kept getting lost and stuck because we had never driven in this. It's a really small town. New Orleans sounds like it's a big place, but it's a lot of one ways. So we kept getting stuck. And basically, um, I think he had the idea to just pull over to this like uh, valet parking area and just leave the car so we could go get some lunch. And then from there, we would go to Pensacola. So that's what we did. We pulled up to this valet parking area and uh, he was getting out of the car. He was driving on his side. I was getting out on the passenger side. We're reversed than Australia. You know, we're on the other yes, side yes. from you guys. But so um, I was opening the door on the right and I opened the door and I was about to step out when this Mercedes pulled up and almost took the door off of the rental car. I mean, it got that close and it was going that fast that I was like kind of jumped back. But I looked at the car because something stood out to me and it said the front license plate, you know, you can have vanity plates and they say um, words that you want them to say. Yeah. I don't know if it's like yes, Australia, yes, but, yeah. you know, the front of the car said danger. So I saw that and I was like, it just stood out to me for some reason because the car almost hit me probably. And then I saw that the frame, like the frame that goes around the license plate said, um, Mason, let there be light. And I just went like, oh my God, Matt, you have to see this. And I was turning to Matt because he had gotten out over here. And I was like, Matt, you have to see this. This is incredible. And he goes, hold on, my attorney's calling. And he took the call and I saw that he got goosebumps everywhere and he started to fall to his knees. And I thought something happened because I found out about my dad's death over the phone and I found out about Mason's death over the phone. So I um, I guess I immediately just associated it with something happened and I started to feel panicked. And then 
um, I was like kind of from what I recall, I was screaming at him, like, what, what, what happened? And he said, um, we're not going in. I'm not going in. I'm not going in. Um, the prosecution admitted today that day that they lied and withheld evidence. The judge stayed the surrender. I'm going home. Wow. And I remember looking at him and just being in a state of shock. Like, why would the prosecution tattle on themselves? Like, why would this happen? And then I remember saying to him, Matt, you're not going to believe this. But look at this car. Look at this right here. It says danger. And the danger is surrounded by Mason. Let there be light. I mean, what are the chances that yeah. you find out you're not going into prison at the same moment a car pulls up? that has Mason's name on it surrounding danger. I mean, it was just, it was too crazy and too weird. So that would probably be the most surreal, out of body, crazy experience I think that I've ever had. And, um, and I mean, I think it's just proof that, that, that our loved ones are still working with us from yes. the other side. And Mason absolutely made that known. So that yes. would be the most magical to date. I, that I can remember off the top of my head. Yes. What is a life of greatness to you? A life of gratitude. A life of gratitude. How may I serve? That is, that is a life of greatness. How may I serve? It is not, dear God, please give me. Dear God, please let me win the lottery. Dear God, please give me some money. It's dear God, let me be abundant. Let me be generous. When I see somebody, even if I don't have a dollar to give, let me give a prayer. Let me give a silent thank you. Let me give a kind word. I remember my dad used to say that to me all the time. If you don't have singles, like single dollar bills, don't put your don't put your window down and never give 20s because somebody could break your window because he would always give money to homeless people. So I would too. And I remember him saying, never, never give more than singles because you don't want to like advertise that you have cash just in case. But if you don't have singles, give a thank you and give a prayer. It's just as valuable as the money. And um, to this day, I think it's not, it's not what's in it for me. It's how may I serve. And a life of greatness is a life of gratitude. It's thank you. It's thank you. And how may I offer it to somebody else? Serena, thank you for not dying with your music inside of you because as I mentioned, the book, The Knowing, is fantastic. The work you're doing is unbelievable. So thank you for the conversation today. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode, then I'd love you to join my community on Instagram at Sarah Grimberg, where we post videos and behind-the-scenes footage of each recording. You can also join my private Facebook group, Live Life Greatly where we discuss the content in this episode and many more, as well as give advice and tips on how to live a life of love and meaning. To purchase my ebook, Finding Greatness, head to sarahgrimberg.com. And if you love what you heard, then we'd love you to hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and leave a five-star review. It will help us share this wisdom with others. A Life of Greatness's executive producer is me, Sarah Grimberg. Audio producers Matt Curry and Nicola Sitch. Special thanks to Grant Tothill for bringing this dream to life. For more episodes, search a Life of Greatness podcast, download the new listener app now and listen for free. 
listener.